Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today I'm delighted to be speaking with Kevin Bethune, founder and chief creator of Dreams, Design and Life. Kevin is an accomplished designer and innovator. He started his career as a mechanical engineer, working in the world of nuclear power. He then turned to work in a different kind of engineering, that is design engineering. Although quite different fields, the thinking is much the same. Be innovative and come up with solutions to complex problems. Since then, Kevin has designed some of the most iconic Nike sneakers. Not being fulfilled designing footwear, he moved on to pursue a career in innovation. Kevin, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sean. Uh, pleasure to be here and thank you for having me. So today we are going to talk a little bit about luxury, but I was wondering if you could just kind of set the scene and tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your journey been and how do you describe what you do for work? Sure. No, thank you. Um, I guess you could say my, my journey was very much a multidisciplinary uh, path uh, and I found design a bit later in my travels, but based on the way the world is moving, I'm very thankful for the timing. Uh, as you said, I, I started in the in the nuclear power generation industry as a mechanical engineer, but uh, going back to my youth, I was always curious about uh, notions of design, creativity, but based on how I started out, I felt that I should maybe aspire to a more pragmatic journey. Design felt like an abstraction during the time, and uh, so I, I had a, a marvelous time in the nuclear profession, cutting my teeth on product, working with high-performing teams. But through the, your work experience, natural curiosity sort of creep in, a curiosity for business, and that led to going to a business uh, school experience. But that creative itch kept scratching. And I, I, I decided, you know what, I, I want to I join an organization that embodies all these elements of strategy, technology, and creativity. And I, I aspired to work for places like, like Nike one day, and thankfully they afforded me a path in. So uh, coming into the Nike environment, it really opened my eyes to the power of creativity. And thankfully some newfound creative friends saw the, the creative explorations I would make for a hobby, and they invited me to actually try my hand at, at footwear design. And so I was able to learn under the, the best and brightest in the Nike environment and I actually made a difficult decision. I actually decided to quit Nike to go back to school to really solidify that creative foundation. But I realized at the same time, again, just on how the world was shifting, that I didn't need to abandon my technology and business background behind. I could meld it all together and really position my career uh, to really live at the intersections of these disciplines. And so that's been the nature of the work since leaving design school. Um, I, I graduated from Art Center College of Design back in uh, 2012, and since then been working on a number of different multidisciplinary opportunities. So how did um, this new iteration, this Dreams Design in Life, come about? You know, I, I have to backtrack a little bit and say that as I was rounding the bend of my design education and helping entrepreneurs in the Los Angeles area, I met a small group of business partners that essentially saw the same opportunity in the world around this these converging disciplines and what you get when you allow different disciplines to collaborate together in the room. Um, and we started working together and that ultimately, ultimately became an incubator opportunity that was acquired by the likes of the Boston Consulting Group. We became known as a incubator in that, in that realm. And it was a rare multidisciplinary runway to create new startup opportunities for large corporates that couldn't necessarily uh, pivot their attention away from the core business. We actually would team with them. We would ring fence designers, digital uh, strategists, technologists, 
in the room and we would invite the client to actually embed and live in residence in our innovation studios. And we were literally creating businesses, startups for these large corporates. And those startups would leave the nest and ultimately they would either become a new business unit inside the, the bigger client or they would spin out as joint ventures. And through that experience, uh, I was just super grateful to, for BCG for investing in us and providing us a global runway to, to do these things. But over time, I, I just noticed that instead of applying my energy to all industries, all topics affecting all clients of BCG, that I, I, I wanted to steer my calories back to a couple topics that are I'm, I'm perhaps a bit more passionate about. And because my career had been more physical and digital in nature, I wanted to Number one, work in areas that uh, brought physicality as well as digital, as well as human-based services together and work on new ecologies for, for client partners. And then also, uh, instead of just perhaps digitizing the next company, I wanted to really work on uh, meaningful human-centered problems and really work on ways to unlock human potential and really enrich the human experience. What is the human experience? <laughs> I, I mean, I guess you could say it definitely isn't staring into phone screens all day. <laughs> you know, I think I think there's so much that we can do to to give people new pathways of utility that perhaps they haven't had before, and maybe they don't even know what to even ask for in today's climate. But how can we create new pathways of new utility that provides purpose and usefulness in their life, enriches their life? And then in the world of big data, all this media, all this noise coming at us, um, how can we actually design experiences that parse through the noise and surface up information that's only relevant to encourage someone to actually walk through that path of new utility we just created? And then lastly, um, I, I'm a big believer in, let's just do more than just solve minor inconveniences and pain points. Let's actually work to transform how someone feels about the brand of which they engage. So really strike that emotional chord, that emotional resonance that's so important. I'm, that's, I mean, that's really interesting because I mean, just as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about kind of all the changes that we've seen over the past, well, you know, I'm thinking about a five-year change, but now I'm thinking about a six-month change, which has been much more considerable than, you know, five years. Um, and I was just wondering what you thought, what are the biggest changes you've seen over the past six months in, in the way you approach your clients, the way you work? Hmm. No, you're right. Um, I think the, the level of change that we've observed in the last six to 12 months has been unprecedented. What would have taken years has now taken weeks, if, if not months or days. Um, and, you know, we could talk about COVID realities all, 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 all day for the full hour if we wanted to. But if, if we sort of take an optimistic beat and lean forward into the future, I, I do think that no longer is it enough to view opportunities through the lens of, of design, technology, and business together, right? That, that's you know, definitely a recent paradigm over the last handful of years, but that's no longer enough anymore, especially through the learnings of this year. I think now more than ever, we need to, we need to really grasp the implication of every business decision as it has broader effects on you know, perhaps our employees or the brands we work for, um, broader society, data ethics, environment with climate change being an, an enormous pandemic that we're still sort of trying to understand. Um, and then that's not enough. The ecological implications are not enough to study. We also need to unlock and really raise awareness around the threads of 
systemic imbalance, the, the histories that have informed a lot of these institutions and enterprises of which we navigate and spend a lot of time, uh, we need to unpack where those histories have sort of informed how things operate today and really question, like, why does it have to be that way? And our ability to ask the right questions could actually create some unlocks for us. I suppose the question is, why does it have to be that way? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, it, it, it sure it surely doesn't. I mean, there's, I, I think we've seen, you know, unfortunately it's taken tragedies of the likes of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and others to really open our eyes to these issues. But I guess I do find a little bit of encouragement around the education that's happening, the rising awareness of like these, these threads of imbalance have are, are here and they're real. Uh, systemic issues are real and we need to unpack them, understand them and figure out how do we, how do we create new models moving forward? Uh, it's yeah. I mean, what fascinates me and I, fascination might not be the right word, but what gets me is that, you know, we, we live in a world and, you know, we live in a world that is creative because that's the type of work we do, regardless of all the kind of management around systems and data and tech and, you know, issues that you've mentioned around the environment or sustainability. But when it comes to a diverse working environment, which is what creativity thrives on, there these seem to be these conflicts for some reason or the other. And one wonders why. I wonder what you thought. Yeah, no, um, you know, definitely as a, I can, I can only speak for myself uh, based on that question uh, that I've, I've been a, a, a black man navigating corporate America through the paces of engineering, business and design. And I, I know what it feels like to feel that exclusion. Gr granted, I, I've also benefited from privilege as a male, as you know, having gone through school and getting access to certain networks. So there's definitely a fair amount of privilege that I, I have to recognize. But at the same time, I, I do know what exclusion feels like. I do know when, when I look at certain fields to see like, okay, there are times where I was the only black male you know, engineer in an organization or, or institution, or, you know, to look at the design industry in itself and see that, you know, the amount of, of black industrial designers is minuscule, right? The lack of women industrial designers minuscule compared to when I look at the world and see the needs that are out there. Now, I think the imperative for all of us is to say, you know, for the future of the next generation design and innovation studios, are they multidisciplinary? but that's not enough. Are they actually representative of the beautiful tapestry that is the world? And right now it's surely not the case. Wow. Yeah, that's, that, that's quite shocking really, because I interviewed um, somebody else um, for this podcast and she said exactly the same to, thing to me. Uh, she said, you know, I often go into the room and I'm the only black woman in the room. And and this is where this the, this question about creativity and diversity keeps coming up because you know we were saying a similar thing that creativity is about diversity because that's what brings you know the world together. It's like you can't do it on your own from one standpoint or one point of view. I wanted to ask you uh, just um, kind of stepping sideways a bit about excitement and what excites you about the work you do. Oh no. Interesting question. I've never been asked it that way before. <laughs> um, honestly, I, I, I really am excited every time the creative process proves to be reliable, you know, and 
the act of no matter the situation, it could be a business to consumer problem, a business to business problem, business to business to business to consumer. <laughs> but ultimately to, to be able to understand and unpack what's going on with real human beings and to not like study people as research subjects behind a mirrored glass, but actually get on the ground with them and, and immerse in their realities, hear from them, co-create with them, design with them, not just for them from an ivory tower perspective. Um, that, that humanity and understanding the, the humanity, the multifaceted, full vibrancy of humanity is always exciting to me because I, I never walk away from those opportunities, any opportunity to just engage without having a new and novel insight that excites me as well as, you know, client partners in the team in general around, wow, we have an opportunity to actually serve this person differently than what the market has done to date. So let's, let's really activate on that. And then, you know, I, I definitely am a, a fan of technology and everything, but I don't like the, the paradigm of, you know, everyone staring into their <laughs> rectangular viewport and, you know, we're glued to these things and the addiction from that. Um, but I am very excited around notions of like really tapping into what makes us most human and the industrial designer, the mechanical engineer in me loves physicality and to be able to really just fine tune and sweat out the, the most human centered intuitive affordance that's ideally as res respectful as it can be of the system, but figure out how to tie the threads of digital service, content, brand, you know, around uh, compelling artifacts. You know, we've used artifacts since the stone age, right? So it, it is what makes us human, that tactility. So that excites me about the project work that I engage in. It's quite complex. I mean, you know, how do you get inspired? You know, if there's so many different tangents that you're thinking about and so many different avenues you can do go down, um, what inspires you? You know, I, I honestly didn't know how to answer that question when I was first started learning about design, other than, you know, the, the, the initial curiosities, the childlike curiosities that we all carry. Um, you know, big fan of, of technology, big fan of the arts. So, of course, those are muses for me. But now that I engage in like more of this type of work uh, professionally, I, I see future opportunities through a looking glass. And I'm a big believer in opening the aperture. And when we bring multidisciplinary teams together, and that's ideally like the, the type of engagements that I participate in, they sort of have to be multidisciplinary for me to feel like I'm leveraging my best strengths in that, in that sort of reality. So I, I love to look through the looking glass and really galvanize, like, how do we see the future through the lens of people? How do we see the lens uh, of the future through the lens of, of industry and really questioning some of those industry paradigms and asking, like, why does it have to be that way? Can we do something different or ask a different question? And then also bringing in a healthy dose of trends and exemplars into the conversation outside of our immediate reality or on the immediate topic. Can we open the aperture a bit to see are there other patterns from analogous or adjacent spaces that we can bring into the problem solving? Uh, so I'm, I'm incredibly inspired by that holistic take toward the future of looking glass. And um, when I when I speak of trends and exemplars, oftentimes our mind goes immediately to technology. And of course, that's cool and everything, but that's not that's not indicative of everything that's changing and shifting around us. So I love to look at social behaviors, uh, economics, uh, environmental trends, policy trends, uh, even energy and other you know categories of trend, and really bring that holistic flavor 
into every problem that we're trying to solve. Where do you see technology becoming or having the most impact on, you know, a, a current trend, for example? One space that I'm very excited about, but I think it's very much still in its nascency, is um, is the power of, of blockchain-driven platforms. Uh, so this notion of, of distributed ledger technology, being able to basically take out the intermediaries, the middleman, whether it be banks or institutions that sort of regulate the flow of who gets to transact what type of value. If, if we can actually democratize that access and uh, enable anyone to basically get on the platform and transact information, transact monetary instruments or, you know, even barter like that type of future internet, if you will, makes sense and would love to see us eventually get there. And, you know, I think it's, it's been encouraging to see, um, you know, the, the, the wider adoption of things like Bitcoin, uh, you, you know, you can, you can find it now on, uh, PayPal and, and more common platforms now, and you can even buy things with it now. Um, but to see like the next generation of applications where we're tracking, you know, uh, while respecting privacy, but we're tracking supply chain assets or the integrity of the things that we buy, making sure that it's not spurious or fake or phony. Um, there's all kinds of applications. Me medical records could be a huge revolution where, you know, instead of like putting bits and pieces of paper together to track my son's immunizations over his medical history, if if the, the, the blockchain platform sort of knew that history inherently, but respected everyone's privacy, like that's the future that I see out of the, those technologies. Perfect time to move on to luxury. <laughs> um, and the reason I say that is because um, there's the a potential kind of counter argument to that is that, of course, there are, you know, the pros and cons of everything. What interests me about luxury, and you might have a view, I'd be interested to hear it, is the conglomerates, the big kind of, you know, luxury conglomerates in Europe who own most of the luxury brands have been buying up, increasingly buying up their supply chains. Mm. So they own the entire mm. kind of network of supply from, you know, if they're producing leather goods mm. from farm, from animal, all the way through to production and then obviously retail because they have their own retail outlets. What that's done is created um, this really opaque kind of system which nobody knows about. Mm. So they've got, you know, they they have their sustainability charters and agendas and strategies, and they put those things on the website. But when you actually try and find out about something, it's virtually impossible to trace or track one of their um, products. Mm. So you would expect there to be a, to be an openness, but in the luxury area, there's a closed kind of there's you know the shutters come down and they won't say to you oh well you know this alligator skin is coming from um, a farm in australia for example and then tell you how the alligator is farmed mm. so i was just wondering if you had a view yeah no i think it's a great question i i honestly believe that they will no longer sort of be allowed to do that through the through the appetite and perspective of their consumer. The world's a lot smaller thanks to computation, digital connectivity. So there's really, I, I honestly believe no brand can hide their their inner stories anymore. 
Uh, now it may be happening today, sure, and and I understand the realities, but in the future, I think the consumer is expecting that transparency. The consumer is beginning to associate notions of sustainability with luxury. It's it's no longer like the the, the greenwashed product that sits over on the side next to the granola bar, if you will. Like consumers' expectations are raising their and and they actually are starting to steer themselves toward brands that are more transparent. I mean, one of my favorite brands is, is Everlane that exercises this notion of radical transparency behind their products. And, you know, I've, I've seen the evolutions of products through the generations that they've offered, and it's only getting better and better. Um, I believe I'm wearing a Everlane shirt right now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the quality is there, the durability is there, the story behind the product I appreciate, and it makes me want to keep going back to them versus some other, you know, brand that is enticing with premium and luxury offerings. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, hopefully we will see, you know, exactly what you've said, you know, it's not happening now, but hopefully, you know, in a year, two years time that, you know, that transparency will be there because within a, within the luxury in industry, I mean, that is what you'd expect. You know, you expect to see the person making something or you expect to understand where the, the materials are coming from or what the kind of craft um, element of, of an item is. And you also expect them to be innovators. And part of, you know, what you're talking about is about innovation. You know, it's adopting things. What do you think um, are the key attributes to being an innovator? Um, you know, I think I think... Understanding who you're serving is first and foremost. And, and by that, I mean, not just taking um, the surface level, right? Um, I think many, many, especially in my experience in large organizations, there's sort of a skimming for conclusive data. What, what does the data say? Those are the common sound bites that you hear. Uh, what are the market analytics saying? But honestly, a lot of that stuff is, is conclusive evidence that's still necessary to inform strategy. I'm not knocking it. But at the same time, what's often missing is the deeper substance around like what, what actually makes us tick as human beings, the deeper uh, attitudes, motivations, unmet aspirations, sources of latency. And I think if we distill and really bubble that up to the surface, that creates, you know, compelling insights that gets people excited, you know, where we're not just talking about present consensus of our brand or our industry or the, the normal business mechanics. We're seeing opportunities to actually influence change. So being able to connect those, those deeper insights to business paradigms, to the power that technology can have to shape, shift and change things, and then bringing in an open aperture and appreciating the full diversity of, of insights, data points and inspirations. If someone can actually like wallow through that ambiguity and begin to take action, it's not about, uh, having the right or wrong answer. Like the world's too much in flux for that. It's really about, can you create momentum in ambiguity and actually get stuff done, have a vision, but get stuff done to inch toward that vision. Like those are the successful innovators in my mind. Yeah. Cause something that you said earlier about you referred to what I'm interpreting as formulaic you know, systems that are in place that people know about and trust and depend on. And that is kind of their path because they know that if they produce a product in that way, that product is going to sell, change the color, it will still sell, but it's variations on a theme. Um, and 
often those products are com coming from the, the, the brands or the companies that we would expect to be the biggest innovators. How do you reconcile that pool of, well, we are innovating, but we're producing the same stuff because we know that stuff's going to make money. How do you, you know, where's the balance? Um, you know, I think, I think the answer, and again, it's one man's opinion, but I think the answer is a delicate balance where we, we, we do have to respect like the, the businesses that these brands have created, right? Uh, there's, there's uh, a machinery that's put in place now there's pressure to sell the products, right? Um, and and there's market convention, right? We I think I think many brands have educated their consumers to expect certain things. And if you, you know, if you derail too much, you could risk the business. So I think there is that real pressure that we have to acknowledge. But again, I think as we look forward, you know, especially with the younger generations that expect transparency, they expect sustainable products. Um, you have to. You almost have to breed sort of this ongoing paranoia that the existing business structure is not going to get you uh, get you uh, the, the same business over the next five to 10 years, that you need to be working ahead of the curve. You actually have to have a parallel muscle for innovation, sort of informing and figuring out like what, what next business model, what next more sustainable, systematically respectful offering will be necessary to innovate and actually achieve scale with to eventually replace parts of the business that will eventually mature and rightfully mature because perhaps they're not as respectful as they need to be. So always breeding constant paranoia around like you, you definitely need the next best thing, the more respectful thing, the more sustainable thing in the roadmap and, and working to achieve traction with that and scale that so that it can replace um, the things that need to die in the existing business. Mm. I mean, your job, I guess, as a designer, innovator, strategist requires a lot of insight into your customer's psyche. And I was just wondering how you realize their dreams and how you communicate um, a lifestyle that brings together the issues that are most close to your heart, mm. but at the same time are relevant to theirs. Yeah, no, it's... I think what first comes to mind is sort of the contrast to that in, in navigating corporations, we typically speak about the market funnel of like, how, how do you breed awareness? How do you get someone to investigate? How do you get them to click on the call to action and then buy and then retain them through customer support and the like, we, we're all familiar with that market funnel. But again, when we get on the ground with real people and treat them as co-creators, collaborators at a human level and respect them as such and respect that they're not that we're not classifying them under like one persona, you know, nickname, and that that's all they represent. Like we are human beings. We're multifaceted. We're intersectional. When we get on the ground and understand the realities of, of an investment banker or a factory worker, or, uh, you know, someone working on a, on a, the next generation healthcare platform, they naturally have like life stages and inflection points that are important for them. And, we definitely try to key in on the on the off ramps and on ramps around like how do they navigate those critical points in life and figure out like what what are those needs that are representative of each stage of each inflection point of each moment of truth basically and how do we intervene in the most respectful way on their terms not ours as a as a business so that's that's sort of the the coaching and the innovation sort of approach that I take when when I team with client partners and even invest in projects that that we believe in um, is to really 
distill like what is the value criteria that's at play across those the journey of that person and not necessarily the journey of the business and ensure that we're as respectful of creating new utility, new information relevance, and emotional connection because we've we've intervened in a more meaningful way than just selling a a product at a transactional moment. How do you then leverage design um, as a power for good? <laughs> no, I, I think I think if we distill what matters to people at a human level and don't think so much about our business first in that regard, um, you know, like if I sell t-shirts and sneakers, my first you know temptation would be to sell you a, <laughs> a set of shoes and a t-shirt to match it, you know. But that's that might not be what the the runner I'm serving needs at that particular moment. Maybe they just need education. Maybe they need to understand the why behind, like why their body's feeling a certain way. So maybe the the product is a service that I need to provide that person versus feeding my business appetite first. So that's where I think design has power to influence, you know, more meaningful contributions to like how brands can actually serve their audiences true needs, latent desires, uh, unmet aspirations. And if we do that thoughtfully and respectfully, then the business will take care of itself. We, we would have earned a fan, hopefully for life, and allow that brand to be a part of that person's life longer than just trying to sell them a, you know, a luxury good. Uh, so that's, I think, and then also, I think the second part of that is like, what's, what's, what's happening behind the curtain of that, of that user experience, that customer experience that's playing out? Like, are we seeing the systematic causal loops and causal effects of every decision on the broader ecology environment included uh, society included and appreciating like how we're feeding the broader system or you know identifying ways that we're exploiting it if we if we focus on our, our our vantage point on the customer experience like no we shouldn't want to feed a, an exploitive engine where you expect a, a, a poor young woman to spend all she has just to have 30 handbags right that's not that's not even meaningful that's that's just encouraging you know bad consumption behavior where she she probably doesn't need to shell out that much money for all that product and she doesn't need 30 handbags or or myself with sneakers i don't need any more sneakers that i could throw a stick at <laughs> um but I, I do believe that there's probably enough of an audience to say, you know what, for each person in, in your audience, you know, do you believe in your product so much? If it's a handbag or a, a fancy pair of shoes where you, you're, you're actually creating something that is indeed special that matches the, the key moment in that person's life where they're going to remember like when they bought that product for what purpose, they're gonna wanna know the story of what went into creating that product. And if it actually identifies with their DNA too, and they feel like some personal association with it, and they feel, you know what, that thing's gonna be built to last, something maybe I could pass to my my son or daughter, or whoever they might be, you know, I, I could pass that along and it it's a memento. I'm gonna take care of that one bag. I'm gonna take care of that one pair of shoes. I mean, I still have my, my shoes for my wedding day. I mean that because it was a special moment and they were really nice shoes that my, my, my older brother bought for me, you know, so all this emotional <clears throat> moments wrapped around this, you know, one pair of shoes that I have that I'll keep for life, you know, that, and I protect them. I, I take care of them. Like that's where luxury is doing good in my opinion. So that's interesting. I just met a note. 
because I was, as I've mentioned this a few times already, I um, interviewed Olga Baluti um, from Baluti, the shoe leather mm. company. Um, and the one thing that she said to me was that, you know, luxuries, you know, a pair of shoes is not buying a new pair of shoes. The luxury is keeping your old pair of shoes and continuously um, re soling them or fixing them because she said, you know, to me, a good pair of shoes and the luxury in that is that they last for your lifetime. Mm -hmm. Indeed. <laughs> and I've listened to, uh, you know, a number of talks you've given and you you spoke about the most likely path mm. in one of them um, and our future world. Mm. And I was wondering what that looks like to you. Yeah, no, uh, I think anytime we, we look to the future, there's a tendency to look at our how how trends have either manifested or how the world has sort of shifted over the last six to 12 months and just project that forward. You know, right now we're in a pandemic where we could easily talk about COVID realities for the next three to five years and just sort of see a path where we're still probably wearing masks, even with vaccines and things like that. And we still may have to like social distance, keep utilization in spaces low just to protect against pandemic realities. We can we can suspect that it's the most likely path forward. But I think what's more exciting for us to do as creatives is to think, well, where does uncertainty play in? Because I'm sure, as we've seen from this year, uncertainty threw <laughs> some hard knocks at us in many different respects. And the world can shift in a matter of, of days, weeks, months. And if anything, 2020 has shown us that we have to be prepared for that. And we have to build resiliency and future-proof sensibilities into our businesses moving forward. So that says we actually need to wrestle with trends a bit more rigorously. And don't just treat a future visioning exercise as, a, as something you put into a PowerPoint deck or put into a binder and people sort of put it on the shelf and no one looks at it again. Like that's the unfortunate um, mindset around future visioning investigations for a lot of companies. But um, what I'm arguing for um, is that we actually put more muscle behind wrestling with those forces and actually embracing uncertainty as a powerful variable and, and being proactive about it. So instead of just the most likely sort of path ahead, let's actually push, push on other probable outcomes or potential future landscapes that we might design for, even push divergent landscapes that might r rub up against science fiction, almost like the, the extreme plausible future scenario that we might have moving forward. And as a brand, you know, if we, if we project out 10, 15 years, it, it would be fun to imagine like where as a brand would I want to live in a multitude of different future landscapes. And then w when you pick the features that you like to live in, then backcast and say, what things do we need to do today to actually better prepare for an uncertain future? That's, that's sort of the bigger opportunity for creativity, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose just following on with that, I know you're interested in wearables and I know you're interested in tech and all that kind of stuff. What role did, you know, do, do those things play in future selves or kind of the future products we use or the future products you're developing? Yes, I am very interested in those things, but I think uh, a lot of the things that you see at a at a consumer electronics show and whatnot, they still sort of map to the most likely path. They still map to present consensus of how the industry believes those things should look and behave. And I'm arguing that 
have we have we really unlocked like how to how to morph and mesh that technology and those affordances into our more natural human existence you know i'm a, I'm a big fan of philosophies like like flow from mihai chiksent mihai for example where it's like to help someone actually unlock their potential and realize like how they can fulfill the best form of, of themselves and the expressions of themselves, then I think we would design our affordances, our wearables and our, you know, connected things differently to enhance someone's ability to achieve their own sort of sweet spot of flow. Like, uh, for example, uh, I've used the example in past talks of a runner, like stopping to actually look at your, at your wristwatch or look at your phone is not the most intuitive affordance you can imagine, because I might trip on a curb, I might stumble, you know, you don't want to do that in traffic <laughs> when you're running. So I think, I think our connected strategy should be different to really better map to human intent, human intuitiveness. Um, I think the products that we would entertain would look much different if we did that. What would they look like? So I, I definitely uh, hope to see, you know, uh, technology embedded in clothing, um, you know, perhaps, perhaps the next uh, gesture-based wearable. Um, you know, we don't we don't even know that it's sensing our gestures. It just sort of knows that that we're doing things. So that maybe that's in our clothing. Maybe that's in the spaces of which we navigate. The computation needs to be a bit more invisible and, and ubiquitous. And you know, I think even the personality of of some of these affordances, like maybe maybe the customer doesn't need to see a number flashing at them. Maybe there's a more of a human human gesture around what's happening that they that sort of feeds into the idea that you're doing something correctly or you're actually functioning at your optimum. You know, maybe I'm green for the day instead of seeing a number, for example. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I'm, I'm I'm smiling because I'm thinking, well, 30 years ago, scratch and sniff T-shirt <laughs> was kind of the coolest thing. <laughs> And now we're talking about, you know, completely different variables um, from thinking, oh, I want a strawberry, so I'll scratch the strawberry. <laughs> anyway, um, I digress slightly. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. You know, we think about, you know, and within luxury, you're thinking about tech all the time. And, um, you know, there's this argument about the handmade and the machine made, you know, is the machine made the same, you know, does it have the same qualities as something that's handmade, machine-made, vice versa? I was wondering if you had a kind of a view because technology impacts on the manufacturer. Yeah, definitely. I, I think the, the easiest example is something sitting right in front of me. I'll pick it up. It's, it's, a, it's my wristwatch. I, I, to this day, have not steadily worn any type of connected watch, any Apple watch. I, I just sort of refuse because clocks are ubiquitously all around me anyway, from my laptop to my phone. And for me, I, I like to wear um, a piece on my wrist that, you know, mirrors like how I want to feel, what, what makes me feel good. And coming from my engineering sensibilities, I'm a big fan of, of like, you know, the, the handmade precision that went into this, this watch and appreciating it as almost like a memento, as a piece of jewelry, even if... Like I, I forget to set it and it's an automatic watch with no battery, but I know I can give this to my son. It will stand the test of time versus, you know, a battery powered wrist wearable that the battery might corrode that thing in a couple of years and I have to buy a new one. So the timelessness factor of something handmade and manual and analog still appeals to my sensibilities. 
was wondering if you think of design um, as a concept being described as a luxury. <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> I'm throwing them. No, I appreciate you, these abstractions. It's, it, it forces me to think. No, design is a luxury. I, I think there's a good and bad association that I make to that. If if we're designing for really achieving meaning, like like the wristwatch, even though like we we grapple with the idiosyncrasies of you know I might not forget I, I might forget to set this thing and might not be at the proper time, but I wear it because I enjoy how it feels and how it makes me feel. Right. So, in terms of driving meaning whether it be celebrating a wedding, celebrating something I can pass to my son, like th that's, that's where design could actually contribute to the notion of luxury. Um, at the same time, the flip side is I, I, I don't like when I see design feeding into sort of the ivory tower syndrome and notions of exclusion where to be a part of the club, I designed something that, you know, if you can't afford, you know, you're just not part of the club or, 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 you know, designing into engines that exploit or leave people out, like that's not, that's sort of the, the, the bad perception of luxury, I think, of entitlement, classism, and all the isms that you can think of that I'm not a believer in. So hopefully design is a force for good, even when it comes to luxury. So then what is good design? <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, to you, of course. <laughs> good. Yeah, no, I think, I think with the, the, the unique multidisciplinary path that I've taken, design is good business. And I, and I stress good, like systematically respectful, sustainable, built to last, like good business in that sense. Design inspires the art of what's possible. So design, you know, good design, it creates the future, appreciating the power that technology can bring to it. And good design is human. Like we, we ideally mesh whatever solutioning to what makes us most human in our everyday realities. We also spoke kind of briefly about sustainability earlier. How do we address sustainability in a much more meaningful way? Yeah, I, I, I think it is the necessary future for anything that we do, especially within luxury. Uh, we can no longer sort of feed into the typical greenwashing paradigm where our sustainable offerings are sort of a sliver of the business over here, sort of a, a, almost under the guise of social impact. Um, sustainability does need to be core, but that does require us to open the hood, lift the hood and see like what's happening, what are the mechanics inside of our business. And we almost have to like expect that the consumer's watching. The consumer will see the connectivity regardless, as much as a brand tries to hide Consumers and your audiences, especially the new generations, are going to want to peek under the hood and see, like, where is this stuff coming from? So you, but you, you might as well get ahead of it and ensure that you're innovating not just the end product, but innovating supply chain, innovating raw material potential. Um, you know, there's uh, one of my friends did a TED talk um, um, on leveraging uh, bacteria to produce dyes for you know inking and apparel and and soft goods you know and and so what, what what innovations are there to be had to really change like how things are done and just in general to get away from toxic approaches um exploitive approaches like we have to be optimists in that regard and believe with our full vigor that we can figure out better ways forward with how we create anything so that's that's the hope and optimism that i carry into any any work
Yeah, and that's I mean I that's admirable. I mean to you know, it's about a positive future, isn't it? Do you think through us, I suppose, as you know, designers and makers and whatever's I mean, do you think that us encouraging consumption creates in effect a wasteful mentality? Um at first at first blush, maybe so. But I think if we show to our audiences that we're more than just getting them to buy a, a product in a transaction, that we're at, we are trying to hit their inflection points. We, we, we want to convince them that, you know, the product is built to last, that it will last a lifetime, um, that we, that we could actually maybe take back that old product and give them something new, but show them how we're, you know, dissecting and dismantling and reusing parts of the old product. Like if, if people had that transparency, I think they would get more customers, not less, even though at first blush, it might feel like you're selling less product to someone, you know, I think, I think that consumer base will prove, prove itself to be more, uh, longevity focused than just again, transacting product for the sake of it. Yeah. And, and there's, there, there's a lot of that kind of happening, isn't there? You know, companies who manufacture, oh, I don't know, whatever they might be, whether it's a, uh, an item of clothing or an electronic um, good, you know, that they are saying, well, in effect, rent it for six months, bring it back. Mm. Um, you can either have something new or we'll repurpose it, reconfigure it. Um, so that's, I, I guess that is an encouraging step where some companies are thinking oh in actual fact you know this is what you've just said the business sense is to support um, the customers in a different way and to start to change the way of thinking isn't it absolutely i mean what one of my favorite examples is um bang and olsen recently uh is offering a refurbished turntable for vinyl records it's expensive, but what they did is they they found they scrubbed the earth for these old players, and they by hand resurrected the materiality of them to this like beautiful outcome. You know, you wouldn't expect that from a luxury brand. No, that's and that's quite amazing. But then, I mean, I suppose um, the kind of advantage of that is that what they are doing is partly illustrating part of their heritage which is you know we go back however many years our products you know will last forever we can take them back reconfigure them that is kind of in effect potentially the ultimate in a in a luxury good because it, like you said about your shoes you know it has that um mm -hmm. longevity in life absolutely I'm aware of the time. So parting question to you is, um, is not a difficult one is, is kind of what is your, um, or not a challenging one, shall I say, uh, what is your luxury? You know, I think, I think I'll, I'll, I'll get through the, the obvious ones first. Um, like definitely like just time, time famine, um, creating more time for memorable experiences with my family loved ones, you know, that, that, that's the most important thing, the most important luxury, because you can't get time back. Um, but when it comes to like, w for Kevin himself, when I sort of can get away from the noise of the business and, and, you know, the, the phones and the, the phone calls and the emails, I love music. Music is a luxury. And I, I do, you know, being the industrial designer in me, I, I definitely sweat out like finding the best products for musical enjoyment. 
whether it be headphones, whether it be speakers and these kind of things. Like I'm a nerd when it comes to that stuff. <laughs> Do you have your own decks and things like that? Or is it kind of listening and playing equipment? Listening and playing equipment. Yeah. Okay. So you're not DJing on the side. <laughs> no. There's no side hustle. But just being able to sit and immerse in good, good music. Uh, I, I enjoy those moments in a given week. Yeah. I mean, and what more would you want? I mean, it's time, family and music. That's Brilliant. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, Kevin Bethune, founder and chief creator of Dreams, Design and Life. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been fantastic today. Well, thank you, Sean. Appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. And thanks to our partners, Intellect Books. And thank you for listening. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.